welcome to the History of the Klondike Gold Rush, Episode 8, The Infamous Chilkoot Trail. I'm Keith Halliday. And I'm Pascal Halliday. In our last podcast, we followed a stampeder named Tappan Adney as he arrived in Skagway, Alaska, and discovered that the so-called Easy Trail, the White Pass, was actually a treacherous track through rocky defiles and bottomless mud bogs. So bad, in fact, part of it was called Dead Horse Gulch. In this episode, we'll follow him as he tries option number two, the Chilkoot Trail. The Chilkoot Trail is the most famous route to the Klondike, and the photo of miners struggling in a line with heavy packs up the steepest part, the so-called Golden Stairs, is one of the most famous images of the whole gold rush. In fact, this podcast's logo is inspired by it. The trail starts in Dai, which is on the coast in the next bay over from Skagway, and the start of the White Pass Trail. It's about 10 miles or 15 kilometers between the two. The Chilkoot Trail travels 33 miles, or 53 kilometers, over the mountains to Bennett, on Bennett Lake, in that thin strip of British Columbia between Alaska and the Yukon. The trail passes through three very different eco-zones, starting in the Alaskan coastal rainforest, rising up through the high alpine, and then slowly descending into the pine and spruce of the Yukon interior forests. Once you get to Bennett, you can boat along the upper Yukon lakes, and then the Yukon River, to Dawson City. Today, the starting point, Dai, is a ghost town, and a beautiful place to camp for the weekend or just walk along the beach, looking out for gold rush artifacts abandoned by the Stampeders. For thousands of years, it had been the jumping-off point for Klingit trading parties headed into the interior, and, just prior to the gold rush, it had become a small but active community serving the prospectors going in and coming out of the Yukon. There was a long-standing First Nations community, and Captain Healy had a store there. You may recall Healy's store was where that miner died in a dramatic fashion back in the prelude to Discovery Days, after carrying the first news of the 40-mile strike out of the Yukon. By 1897, there was a horse pack train service from Dai to Sheep Camp, which is the last camp on the Alaskan side of the Chilkoot Trail, before it gets steep. And then there was a well-established service by First Nation packers from there over the pass. Keish and Kagooks had met Canadian surveyor William Ogilvy on the Chilkoot and packed for him 10 years before the gold rush. That was the time when Keish earned his nickname, Skookum Jim, for carrying a 160-pound box of bacon over the Chilkoot for Ogilvy. By the time Tappan Adney and the Stampeders arrived, prospectors had been using the old Klingit trade trail over the Chilkoot Pass for more than 15 years. Between the well-established Chilkoot Trail route and steamers coming up the Yukon River from St. Michael on the Bering Strait, shortly before the gold rush, some were even complaining that the Yukon was going soft. Alan Wright describes the situation at 40 Mile this way. Quote, Encouraged by these amenities and the stabilizing presence of the police, more of the married miners were bringing in their wives, and carpets, lace curtains, and even oil paintings were being introduced into the interiors of some of the rough log cabins. Shaken by such fripperies in their mist, the hardcore habitués of some of the saloons could only mourn over their whiskies the passing of the camp's unfettered pioneer era. All that was about to change as 40 Miles residents bolted for the Klondike discovery, and tens of thousands of gold-crazed amateur prospectors arrived all at once and overwhelmed the trail. Before we get back to Tapanadney's story, we should tell you a bit about the Chilkoot Trail. It starts in Dai, and then you travel 13 miles, or 21 kilometers, up the Taya River Valley through the coastal rainforest to Sheep Camp. At first, you are hiking through a relatively flat bit of trail, 
But at a place called Finnegan's Point, the trail starts to go up and down over rocky outcrops. The valley seems to narrow, with cooler winds coming down off the glaciers and the mountains and dense forests blocking out direct sunlight. On the way from Finnegan's to Sheep Camp, you pass through Canyon City and Pleasant Camp, both good camping spots which turned into instant mini-towns during the rush. The section from Canyon City to Sheep Camp is particularly difficult. Today's trail has steps carved into the rocks, and there are multiple creek crossings. The Stampeders, if they were traveling in the winter, preferred to go over the frozen river. After Sheep Camp, the trail starts to ascend sharply. You climb 1,000 feet in the first 13 miles from Dai to Sheep Camp, but 2,500 feet in just 3.5 miles from Sheep Camp to the summit. In metric, that's 300 meters and 21 kilometers to Sheep Camp, then 1,000 meters and a bit over 5 kilometers to the summit. This is true alpine country, with no trees and sparse, but beautiful, alpine flowers and vegetation. Avalanches are a risk, as some stampeders would find out to their peril. And in the summer, the snow melts to reveal a trail that winds over and through giant, shattered boulders and rock. The summit itself is preceded by the famous Golden Stairs, a steep ascent where during the stampede they cut steps into the snow, hence the name Golden Stairs. At the summit, you cross into Canada. The going is easier, although still challenging, on the way to Bennett. The weather is often drier in the rain shadow of the big mountains, and the valleys are wider. We've often come up to the summit out of rain and mist on the Alaskan side, only to cross and have the Yukon side open up into sunny, majestic landscapes. It's good for morale, but you can see how far you still have to walk. After the summit, the trail descends slowly through Happy Camp, Deep Lake, Lindemann to Bennett, about 16 miles or a bit over 25 kilometers. Let's pick up the story of Tap and Adney here. He'd been planning to go over the White Pass, like we said, but it quickly became clear once he arrived that choosing to lead his horses through Dead Horse Gulch would be a terrible idea. So he arranged with a packer named Ledbetter and his two partners for their outfits to be boated over to Dai, about 10 miles or 15 kilometers distant. The deal was that Ledbetter and his team would carry the outfits to Bennett and in return get ownership of Adney's horses once the job was done. Adney's goods went in one vessel from Skagway to Dai, and he paid a First Nations man from Wrangell, Alaska, to take him over in a dugout canoe. Adney was hopeful that the Chilkoot Trail would be easier than the White Pass. But as soon as he arrives, he discovers to his horror that an unusually high tide had flooded in, inundating his outfit and carrying off untold numbers of boxes and parcels. Adney's own pile of goods, or what hadn't already floated away, was already under a foot of water and was only saved by the intervention of a total stranger who paid a teamster $12 to move the pile onto dry land. Ledbetter is nowhere to be found. There's a two-mile trail up one bank of the Taya River to where a primitive ferry takes goods to where the trail continues on the other bank. Instead of slogging their water-soaked outfits up this trail, Adney and his partners hire four First Nations men with a canoe, and they drag their outfit upstream, two miles up the river, to the ferry crossing. Adney's stock of cash dwindles a further $16. The bad news is that when they get their tent and stove set up and open Adney's waterproof bags, the ends were poorly tied and everything inside was soaking with salt water. Boxes had come apart from the wetness and labels were floating beside unmarked bottles. His photographic equipment was supposed to be hermetically sealed, but instead of seals, the shop had just used rubber bands. Water poured out of the cans. Adney writes, quote, The utter hopelessness of that night will never be forgotten. 
The good news was that Ledbetter's tent was erected at the ferry crossing, and the flour was not ruined, just a bit wet around the edges. And the bacon was fine. Adney spent two days drying everything out and cursing the fact that he had not personally checked that everything was sealed. The packing crew had not bothered, nor had they taken the trouble to stack his outfit above any possible high water line, probably because they themselves had not been paid in some time by Ledbetter. The happiness of finding Ledbetter's tent was tempered when they learned that Ledbetter had also promised several other parties to carry over their outfits, and he was himself at an unknown location up the trail somewhere. Adney arranged for a telegram to be taken to Seattle and forwarded from there, asking for five rolls of film, this time in soldered tins, and other equipment to be sent to Dawson as soon as possible. Of course, no one knows how long that will take, or even if a parcel express service will eventually be set up to Dawson. Adney heard further depressing news, namely, that in the pre-gold rush days, the prospectors usually moved their goods in late winter over the pass. They would put four to 500 pounds on a sled and move it up to sheep camp, then slog it over the summit, then sled it to Lake Bennett, where they would build a boat as they waited for the ice on the lakes to melt. Another option was stopping a bit earlier on the trail at Lake Lindemann, which flows into Lake Bennett. This saved you seven miles, or around 11 kilometers, slogging your goods overland, but required boating an extra short but treacherous set of rapids from Lindemann to Bennett Lake. Adney and the others at the ferry now found themselves in a quite different situation. It was the end of August, and the river was not frozen. Sleds could not be used. So the outfit would have to be slogged overland to sheep camp, First Nations packers, earlier in the year, were offering to move outfits to Lindemann for 14 cents per pound. Now demand has skyrocketed, and despite the arrival of horses and wagons along part of the trail, prices were now 40 cents per pound. The First Nations packers impressed everyone by the weights they could carry over the pass. They used a different packing method than the packs common among the Stampeders. Adney describes it like this. The First Nations pack straps consist of, quote, two bands of cotton cloth, lined with blanket, two inches wide and 20 inches long, having a loop at each end. These loops are fastened to the top and bottom of the load by means of a small rope and pass around the shoulders in front. A third, head strap, passes over the forehead and ends up being fastened to the load behind. In this way, an Indian, that's the word used by Adney at the time, walks off with twice the load a white man will undertake to carry. And even young boys and women take their 75 pounds and accompany the men. First Nations packers placed a small blanket under the pack to cushion it, and also carried a stout walking stick. A group of 20 or 30 First Nations packers will put a whole outfit to Lindemann in two days. The First Nations dogs were also trained to carry packs. The summer trail is difficult, rising up steep gulches, then rapidly descending to cross fast-flowing mountain streams. Enterprising men have built a wooden bridge at one point, and charge 50 cents per loaded horse to use it. Various parts of the trail have been corduroyed, meaning that logs have been laid down and fastened along the worst parts. Horses and people walk over them relatively easily, no matter how much it rains. Captain Healy's pack train of 10 or 12 horses runs daily from Dai to Sheep Camp, carrying 200 pounds per horse. By this point, August 29th, Adney and his partners have been in Alaska for almost 10 days and have only made it two miles up the trail from Dai. Winter is on its way. Adney's deal with Ledbetter is that Ledbetter will transport Adney's outfit in return for use of and eventual ownership of the horses. Frustrations are growing. Quote, It is impossible, says Adney, to give one an idea of the slowness with which things are moving. 
It takes a day to go four or five miles and back. It takes a dollar to do what 10 cents would at home. The blacksmith is either at Skagway or is drunk or has left his tools behind, unquote. Half of Ledbetter's horses are off-duty waiting for shoes, which fall off regularly on the rough trail. Adney's two partners decide to get their horses back from Ledbetter and pack their outfits themselves. Adney, on the other hand, decides to stay with Ledbetter, and they amicably end the partnership. As part of the deal, Adney gives his partners one of his six horses, Nellie. He now has five good horses being used by Ledbetter's packers and 1,400 pounds of outfit. A day or two later... Ledbetter's crew takes 800 pounds of Adney's gear to Finnegan's Point, and Adney pays a wagoneer to take the rest. It's worth noting that if you were one of the Stampeders who was already out of ready cash at this point, which many were, you didn't have the option to hire the wagoneer. You had to carry it all yourself. Finnegan's Point, by this date, is a community of 20 tents. One is a saloon, one a restaurant, and another a hotel. At the hotel, two women from Seattle offer full meals of beans, bacon, bread and butter with dried peaches and coffee. It costs 75 cents, which was three or four times or more what a restaurant dinner might cost in the lower 48. One of the Seattleites was getting ready to move her 200-pound cooking range from Figgins Point to Sheep Camp. Or, if you wanted to cook yourself, you could buy a 10-pound salmon from a First Nations fisher for 25 cents. Adney describes how the First Nations people fish by paddling slowly in a canoe, while a person in the bow armed with a gaff, a long stick with a hook on the end, feels in the silty water for a fish, then gaffs it and lifts it quickly into the boat. The Taya River water is so full of silt that you can't see enough to spear a fish, in most places anyway. But the fish are plentiful. Adney himself spots one in clear, shallow water and shoots it with his revolver. Adney continues the slog up the trail with Ledbetter's packers. The lumber for Adney's boat becomes a problem at this point, since it's so long. It's a challenge to pack it on horses. So Adney hires two men who rig up a kind of double rope sling so they can carry a few boards on each side of their bodies. The lumber weighs 165 pounds, and Adney pays them $25. Adney was now moving faster than many others, including other Ledbetter customers. His pack train men reported one night that they had been threatened by angry miners with revolvers, other Ledbetter customers who had been told that their outfits would already be at Lindemann by this point. On the night of September 2nd, the situation came to a head. The packers held what they called a committee meeting. It turned out that they weren't professional packers, but rather cash-poor gold seekers who were working for Ledbetter to make a few bucks so they could continue their own journey to the Klondike. They began to realize that if they kept carrying everyone else's outfits, their gear would never make it over the pass, and that their only chance to get their own outfits through was to push through on every available horse the next day, throwing out the previously agreed order of whose outfits would go where next. All of Ledbetter's customers were in an uproar. Adney tries to get control of his horses, but the packers load them up and leave with the rest of the pack train for sheep camp the next day. Ledbetter himself is moving outfits slowly up to the scales, the last staging point before the Golden Stairs section of the trail takes you over the summit, while a customer rebellion brews down the trail. Quote, Every man is for himself and fears to be left. On September 3rd, Adney goes with a party of First Nations people to Skagway to talk to the United States commissioner there and obtain papers to be served in case the packers or others continue to hold and use the pack train which of course is owned by Adney and other Ledbetter customers. Adney attends court, which is held on a rock between Dai and Skagway, for the equal convenience, 
or inconvenience, of plaintiffs from both places. The United States government presence in Skagway and Dai is growing, but it's still very early days. The court is in a tent. The commissioner sits on a small box of goods with a larger box in front of him as a desk. Then there are lawyers. Yes, there were plenty of lawyers among the Sampeters, and they were already in action. And defendants and plaintiffs sitting on other boxes. As you might guess, attending court on this rock wasn't easy, with no phones or telegraphs, and defendants, plaintiffs, and lawyers scattered up and down the White Pass and Chilkoot trails. Just getting everyone to court at the same time on the same day was a challenge. It could take forever, and this meant losing precious days of moving your outfit up the trail as winter approached. Most parties would discuss their cases in front of the commissioner, then go outside and continue negotiations. All the cases Adney saw were settled this way. Adney says there was not much law, mostly common sense. And if that failed, a burly U.S. marshal now on site would set things straight, quote, in about as arbitrary and effective way as a New York police justice, unquote. Adney ends up paying $20 for a lawyer to make out some papers to serve on the Packers in the event of trouble. Meanwhile, back up the trail, tensions build all day, and no one knows what's going to happen at the Packers' committee meeting that night. But around a big log fire, tempers have calmed down, Adney's back in camp, and the Packers actually ask him to take charge of the train and run it in the interest of everyone. Adney works with those present to do this, including a civil engineer, a butcher who has a load of newspapers he hopes to sell to news-starved miners in the Yukon, and even a man who tried to stow away on the SS Excelsior, traveling straight to St. Michael, but who is now caught and is stuck on the Chilkoot Trail with everyone else. The next day, Adney, the other organizers, and the Packers get the outfits moving, slowly, up the trail again. Adney is finally getting close to sheep camp and the final push over the summit. He runs into his old partners on the trail, who are now moving more slowly than Adney. Adney's old horse, Nellie, which he bought in Victoria, is obviously suffering. Her back is sore and she groans under her load. Adney describes the scene. Quote, Half a mile further on, the pack turns on Nellie and her back is gone. The pack is taken off and she is led back to the camp, where a revolver shot puts the poor, patient little beast out of misery. Join us next episode as Adney finally makes it to sheep camp and enjoys a restaurant meal and a night in, believe it or not, a hotel before making his plan for the final push over the Chilkoot Pass to the Yukon. If you liked this episode, please tell a friend and rate us on Apple Podcasts. If you really liked this episode, please go to our website, which also has links and maps about this episode, and make a donation. That's klondikegoldrush.org. Even a few bucks helps cover the costs of equipment and hosting. We didn't do this podcast to get rich, but as an old miner might say, it would be nice to make enough to get our grub steak back. 